Great to see you all. River West, so wonderful to be together. My name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors. I am here off of a couple of weeks of vacation, and it was wonderful and restful. Many of you prayed for me. Thank you, because I shared that uh, at the front end of my vacation, I took five days of solitude. And I went away to the beach with my Bible, and I turned off my phone, and I turned off my computer, and I just rested. When I was a young man, I had a mentor who said to me, Adam, sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap. And that's what I did, several of them. I took a lot of naps. I would be reading, and I'd fall asleep, and I'd wake up, and I'd read some more. It was awesome. I came home so rested. And then um, Kathy and I and, our, and the girls went on a little vacation for a bit, and then we came home from that, and I did about six days of staycation, which means yard work, right? <laughs> I had a honeydew list the size of the book of Psalms, and we tackled that, and it was great. <clears throat> so great to be back here and great to be back in the Psalms. Will you grab your Bible? Grab your bulletin. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming now. We want you to have the written word there in front of you. We're in this series in the Psalms, and here's what we're doing. If you're a guest or a visitor, welcome. We're glad to have you. We are learning how to pray, and we're learning how to pray using the Psalms. So we're not just studying the Psalms to learn abstract things about God. We're, we're taking individual Psalms, and we're learning how to drop those Psalms right down in the heart of our prayer life. Or maybe a better way to say it is we're dropping ourselves right down into the middle of individual Psalms so that we can pray with a deeper sense of focus and a little bit more connection with God using language that he's given us to talk to him. And if you're like me, one of the things you've discovered is this series is so practical. The Psalms are practical. We've learned really practical things right at the beginning of the series. One of the titles of the sermon was what we should say every time we pray to God. That is practical. We studied Psalm 62 and we learned there are some things that we should say to God every time we pray to him. So practical. A couple of weeks ago, Christopher preached a sermon titled, What to Say When You Don't Want to Pray. That was so practical. Because if you're like me, there's times where you know you need to pray, but there's just a part of you that's not feeling it. Where would you go? Christopher said you go to Psalm 63. And you find their language that will help you communicate with God, even when your heart is dragging behind, right? Last Sunday, Pastor Guy preached a very, he said, here are five things you can pray about at 2.30 in the morning. If that's not practical, I don't know what practical is, right? You wait, how many of you woke up this week at 2.30 in the morning after that sermon? I know there are a lot of them. Yes, people woke up. You went to Psalm 16. What do I do? I'm, I'm awake. The, the mind is booting up. You pray. Okay, today, when I share the title, you're going to say, I don't know if this seems as practical, but let me assure you that it is. The title is this. How to pray in the presence of a king. You say, I don't think that's very practical. Oh, wait a minute. Let me assure you, every time you pray, and I'm sure it's dawning on you in this moment, every time you pray, you are in the presence of a king. You're in the presence of the king of the whole world. How should you pray? in light of that reality? What should you say? What kinds of words should you use? What kinds of emotions should you be feeling? Well, that's what Psalm 47 is about. Would you turn there with me? And while you're turning, I'm going to share with you a statement that 
summarizes this entire psalm, and this statement is going to serve as sort of a headline for our time together. I know that as I say it, you're going to register with this. It goes like this. There's a certain kind of joy that results when you know that someone really good is in charge. There's a kind of joy that you feel. It's, it's, it's an emotion that's more than just comfort or peace of mind. You do feel peace of mind when you know someone really good is in charge. But what I'm talking about is someone who's really good and they're in charge. There's an emotion that you feel and that emotion is just this incredible joy. The kind of joy that takes over and it's contagious and, and you immediately respond to it and you immediately feel it. That moment when you recognize I have someone who's totally powerful. And they're also totally good. And those two traits come together. And that person is in charge. What I feel is joy. Now, sometimes you have situations where you have someone who's really powerful, but they're not good. And they're in charge. And there's no joy in that. You know, the history of the nation of Israel was that. There were so many times where they had a king or a monarch, and it was, it was someone who was really powerful, but they were, they were evil kings. They were leading the people of Israel into idolatry. It's just one story after another. There's a story in 2 Kings that I read this week about an evil king who died, and his mother was just as evil, and she didn't want to lose control of the kingdom, and so she started to single-handedly murder all of his children so there would be no heir. Talk about wickedness. Talk about power, but not good. You could read about that later in 2 Kings 11. More dramatic than anything you'll watch on Netflix today. I assure you. Go back. Read it. She was starting to murder people. One of the, one of the family members rescued a small boy named Joash, who was the child of this king, hid him away for seven years. And then they brought him in and they made him king. And the people were so joyful that they clapped their hands and they shouted and they blew a trumpet and they said, long live the king, long live the king, and they erupted with joy. But sometimes you can have someone who's really good, but they've got no power. A modern day equivalent of that would be the British monarchy, right? There's no power there, right? You know, they're typically good. Queen Elizabeth II, she's super popular. Did you know this? 75% popularity rating. People love her. Her coronation was the only coronation that was televised. I learned this because I've been watching The Crown on Netflix. Okay. Confessions of a pastor. So uh, her, her husband, Philip, I can't believe I'm talking about this, but here he goes. Her husband, Philip, was very modern. He said, we got we to gotta put this on television. So it's on YouTube. The only coronation ever in the history of England is on YouTube, and you can watch it. And the people who are watching this, there's no joy because they know that it's, it's, it's good, but there's no real power here. So they get to the end of the coronation, and they're like, long live the queen, kind of, long live the queen. And it's just this sort of drab moment. But what happens when you have absolute power and you have absolute goodness? And they come together, and that person is in charge. You are up with joy. That's what Psalm 47 is about. Will you look at it with me?
to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud shouts of joy. For the Lord, the most high, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Psalm 47 is commonly referred to as an enthronement psalm. It's a psalm where people praise God. It's a hymn and they worship God because they recognize he's the king of the entire world. And so at several points in the psalm, this praise and joyful celebration just bursts out. People recognize God is king. This is so good. And maybe you notice that right in the middle of the psalm, at the center verse, verse 5, the psalmist actually reenacts metaphorically God's enthronement, this idea of God going up to his throne and sitting. Did you see it there? Verse 5, God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. The people are rejoicing. It's metaphorical, but imagine it. You're, you're in a throne room. It's your land. It's your country. It's your people group. And there, there's the throne, and no one is sitting on the throne. And that means instability for your kingdom. And all the subjects are in the room. And then suddenly someone begins to walk up and this person seems to be really good and they appear to be unbelievably powerful. And the person turns to sit and you realize it's God himself, the creator of heaven and earth. God is our king and you erupt with praise. Amazing. The joy. The language of verse five would have caused the people of Israel to remember back on a moment in their history that was critical. This idea of God going up with a shout and the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, that phrasing comes from a moment in the the history of Israel when King David took the Ark of the Covenant and he took it up to the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. It was this powerful moment in the history of the people of Israel. The ark represented the presence of God. Many of us, when we hear that word ark, we have no idea what what we're talking about. What is the ark? Luckily, we have Raiders of the Lost Ark to help us theologically, but it's bad. Don't go there, okay? The ark was a a wooden box that held the, the, the covenant, the old Mosaic covenant, the tablets of the law, and it represented God's presence, and it was his throne. He would sit between the cherubim, and David knew that Everywhere the ark went, everywhere the presence of God went, the people were blessed to be in God's presence. Blessed to have God dwelling among them. And so David and the people, in this triumphal procession, they march up to the city of David with the ark, and there's trumpets sounding and people rejoicing. It happens in 2 Samuel chapter 6. David dances with all of his might before the Lord. He can't help it. He's just rejoicing. I'll read what happens. Listen for the common language. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. 
Look at this. So David and the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. That's Psalm 47, verse 5. Shouting. David can't contain it. He just shouts. People clap. They rejoice. Clapping is is a sign of jubilation. You can't help it. You just start clapping. Have you ever been in here and, and clapping just breaks out? People just start rejoicing, right? And sometimes you want to clap and you're the only one who claps and then it's really awkward. I was that guy just about five minutes ago. Did you hear that? That was me. And you want to rejoice. Do it. Just start clapping, okay? Right now, go for it. Just start clapping, right? Amen. We're so reserved. Have you ever, I've had people come up and say, I wanted to shout amen so loud, but I didn't want to be the only fool in the church yelling, right? We go to a Timbers game and we scream till we're hoarse. And then we go to church and our voices rest. What's wrong with that picture? What's wrong with that picture? Thank you. And what about this, folks? Yes. Take your Bible, go home, go into your room, shut the door and read Psalm 47 and get a vision of God on the throne and then just scream at the top of your lungs and clap and rejoice. It will do your soul some good. It will. Amen. There are two, um, thank you. Now, okay, stop it now. Get out of control here. No. (laughs) There are two aspects of God's kingship that should cause us to break out in rejoicing. Just two. No, there's many, but there's two in this psalm, okay? Here they are. Two things about God's kingship that if we get it, we, will just, we won't be able to contain the joy. The first is his victory as king. The second is his reign as king. His victory and his reign. Today I want to take some time with both of those and then at the end I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you something about Jesus. So let's talk about it. His victory is king. This is a source of joy. Will you look at it? It's verses 2 through 4. The psalmist says, for the Lord the most high is to be feared a great king over all the earth. The psalmist, he's awestruck in God's presence. That word feared, it that's what it means. It means to be awestruck. It means God is so awesome that when you realize that you're in his presence, you, you tremble. It's not a negative. It's a positive. You, you come to terms with how small you are in his awesome presence, and it overwhelms you. Why? The psalmist goes on. He subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. This awesome king is a victor. He's dominant. He's triumphant. This was almost certainly the psalmist looking back to that point in the the history of Israel when God freed them from the tyranny of Egypt, slavery. He subdued the nation of Egypt and he rescued the people and he redeemed them out and he led them into the promised land. And the people rejoiced because of the victory of God. Psalm 47, 2 and 3 is a vision of God's dominance and his power and his victory, and it's a source of joy for the Christian. Now today, 
God is, continues to be victorious and he continues to subdue, but it, it's different. So today, through the ministry of Jesus Christ, God is still about the mission of subduing, but now he's intent upon subduing human hearts. And he does it through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. God, in love, sent his one and only son into the world because of our hardened, sinful hearts, hearts that are locked up, hearts that are stone cold, hearts that say, I refuse to honor you as creator and king. And God, in his love, sent Christ to die for the sin of those hearts, to break them, not because of wrath or, or vengeance, but because of love a desire to redeem people, to free them from the slavery and the bondage of refusing to serve God and know God and love God. And so God is subduing, even today in this moment, subduing hearts that have come in locked up. God says, I love you so much. I sent my one and only son to die and rise again so that you could be free from the tyranny of bondage. It's so beautiful. This is the source of our Christian joy. When we hear a Christian testimony and, or we come to a baptism and we hear someone talk about re, being redeemed out of sin, we know God has subdued their heart. It's so beautiful. I love how Timothy Keller describes it in this book we've recommended, The Songs of Jesus. He writes about Psalm 47, and I'm going to put this up on the screen so you can see it. He, he uses a phrase that I found so interesting it's the phrase, the joy of submission. I want you to think about this for a minute. He writes about Psalm 47, God is the powerful king of the whole earth and is subduing people to his rule. But because God is the rightful king, the one we were created to know, serve, and love, the result of his conquest of their hearts is joy. You get conquered by God and the feeling that you feel first is joy. That is so unexpected. They clap their hands because of his rule over them. God is the fuel that our souls were designed to run on. So the greater the submission to the true king, the greater the pleasure. Did you hear that? That is countercultural. The greater the submission to God as king, the greater your joy will be. Let me tell you something that is not the message that our culture tells us. Our culture says the more that you exert your autonomy, the happier you will be. And God says the more that you try to exert your autonomy, the more miserable you will be. There's this connection in the gospel, in the spiritual life, between my submission to God as king and my joy. Joy comes when I get rightly related with God. He's on a throne. I am not. When someone's on a throne, you come in under their leadership and you surrender to them, and then your joy erupts. It's so profound. I tried to think of an analogy this week, and... One of the analogies that I, I came up with was just this reminder that children thrive most 
in a home where there's really good godly structure. Amen? We know this. Children, if, if children grow up where there's no structure, there's no rules, there's no strong parenting, mom and dad are just a pushover. You know what children do? They push mom and dad over. <laughs> That's what children do. They push over pushovers. But you know what's interesting? Psychologists continue to study this, and study after study after study shows that children who grow up in that environment have less joy, and they're less successful because kids want to know there's someone good in charge. Now, parents, I'm not talking about tyranny here. I'm talking about just strength and love and godly parenting with rules that you actually require your kids to keep. (laughs) And you know what happens? Kids who grow up in that environment, they thrive in that structure because they know what the boundaries are and they're blessed by it. So it is. So it is in your relationship with God. Did you know there's a direct relationship right now in your life between your joy and your level of submission to God as your king. So you go home this week. You take Psalm 47. You go into your room. You close the door. You pray. You get a vision of God, and you say, how's my joy right now? And then you say, Lord, is there any place in my life where I have not submitted to you? Is there any place in my life where... I'm giving you lip service, but I'm actually out over here calling the shots, setting the agenda, dictating what's going to happen in my life. To the degree that that's happening, that will be the degree to which you will have less joy. And so God in love, he woos you and he invites you back in. Surrender to me. Amen. It's just this beautiful, powerful vision of the victory of God. But that's not all. It's not just his victory that causes joy. It's his reign, his perfect righteous rule. Will you look at it again with me, Psalm 8? Now I want to show you about verses 8 and 9. God's not only victorious, but actually as he, as he rules, his reign is perfect. It's amazing. It's wonderful. The psalmist gets a vision of it. He says, verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. This is an incredible vision of God. In the ancient world, monarchs would sit in an elevated place, in an elaborate throne, in an elaborate throne room. And they would sit and, and, and reign and rule. It was, it, was a, it was a demonstration of their authority and their leadership. And they would, and they would hold court and they would l- allow their subjects to come and, and ask them questions or deliberate, you know, conflicts. And they would execute justice in that moment. And one of the other things that would happen was that all of the princes who had been conquered, anytime a king would, would, would ascend to a throne, it involved conquering the whole land. And so all of the princes of the different people groups would come into the king's presence and they would acknowledge his reign. And they would say, we, we acknowledge that you're the king and we serve you. And that's what's happening here in verse 9. The princes of the peoples gather. These are the People in the positions of power. 
the modern day equivalent would be presidents and prime ministers, monarchs, dictators, sheiks, all anyone who has the the power, anyone who's in control of people groups. Psalm 47 says, imagine a day when all of those people finally come into God's presence and they fall on their knees and they acknowledge, I am not in control. You are in control, God. Can you imagine that day? Who would be there? I wonder. Think about it. Pray about it. Who would come into that room and have a regeneration type of a moment? My heart has been obstinate towards my creator and fall on their knees and say, you are king and I am not. Oh, I long for that day. Well, it's more as the shields of the earth do the same. Do you see that? The second part of verse nine, the shields of the earth is a, is a way to describe the, the people on the battlefield who carried the shield. These were the powerful people. These were the warriors. Modern day equivalent in our culture would be the movers, the shakers, powerful people who are making things happen. High capacity people who are out in the world calling the shots, setting the pace, making the decisions. And often when you're a person like that, you can think, I don't need God. God doesn't tell me what to do. I'm out in the world making stuff happen. What about a day when all of those people come into God's presence and they come to the realization, I'm not the one making anything happen here. I thought I was powerful until I entered into the presence of the living God on the throne and I realized how powerless I am. I thought I was high capacity until I saw God on his throne. Now I realize I'm kind of low capacity, (laughs) right? It's amazing how quickly you go from high capacity to low capacity when you come into the presence of the living God. So good. I long for that day. Have you ever been in a situation, maybe you're in it right now, where the people with the power are making decisions and those decisions are impacting your life directly for the negative. You know what that feels like? You just feel out of control. There's no joy. Stuff's happening and you're down here and you're just a tiny little cog in the thing and you're just getting ground up. And you long for a day when God will fulfill Psalm 47. All people will recognize he's in control. Reminds me of a story I heard a long time ago about a battleship sailing through dark waters at night. And the captain of the ship is up and he's watching diligently and he sees a light in the distance and looks as if it's another ship and he begins to panic and he realizes we are on a collision course. So he picks up the radio and he sends out a message through the night He says, this is Captain Jeremiah Johnson. I'm just making up a name right now, but go with me. Captain Jeremiah Johnson, we're on a direct collision course. I command you to change your direction 10 degrees to the south. And out of the night sky comes this voice over over the radio that says, this is Private Joe Jackson. Anyway, just go with me, okay? This is Private Joe Jackson, and I humbly request that you change your course 10 degrees to the north. 
Captain Jeremiah, was it Johnson? I can't remember now. But anyway, he's not happy about this. He gets back on there. I command you, I am a captain of a battleship. Change your course 10 degrees to the south. Goes back and forth. I humbly ask, change your direction 10 degrees to the north. Finally, the captain says, I will court-martial you. You will never see the inside of a ship again. And Private Johnson gets back on and one, one more time says, I humbly request that you change your direction 10 degrees to the north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> I am a lighthouse. Sometimes you think you have the power and then you realize you're coming up against something much bigger than you ever imagined, right? Maybe it's you, or maybe it's someone you pray for, but I can tell you this, Psalms 47 is really good news. There's a day coming. Will you look at it? There is a day coming, and I pray that it comes soon, when princes and shields will come into God's presence, and they'll go to bended knee and worship him. And you know what's amazing about this psalm or this, um, this verse is that little phrase there in verse 8, the princes of the peoples gather. Did you notice this? How do they gather? They gather as the people of Abraham. This is astounding. See, what the psalmist is saying, he's, he's not describing a time when people who are powerful are destroyed. He's describing a time when people with power are humbled and they worship God in unity with the people of Abraham. They become a part of the kingdom of God. It's looking forward to a day when Gentile princes will join the people of Israel and become a part of the kingdom of God and worship God. Amazing. It's good news. It's the day we're, 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 we're praying for, longing for. This was a promise that God had made to Abraham in Genesis. He said, I promise you that you will become the father of many nations. And now Psalm 47 is saying God is beginning to fulfill his promise. And how did he do it? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. To fulfill the vision, God in the fullness of time sent his one and only son, Jesus. Jesus came into the world to become the king of the world. But his ascension to the throne was very unexpected. It was an, it was an ascension in which he looked more like a lamb than a lion. In John 12, 32, Jesus said, And when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the vision of Psalm 47, 8. When I am lifted up, I will do what God promised. I will begin to draw all people, every prince, every shield, from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered to worship God. But then John adds this critical verse, verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Oh, Jesus ascended. He ascended to a cross where he paid for human sin, human callousness, human stubbornness. He took it all. His blood was shed for the remission of sins. He went into a tomb and he rose again in victory. And before he ascended to his heavenly throne, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of 
every nation, right? Jesus said, I am on the throne and you are my viceroy. And I commission you, take this message to the ends of the earth. Share the good news. How beautiful. We have a role to play, River West. We have a role to play. So you go home. You take Psalm 47. You begin praying it. You see Christ on the throne. And then you're reminded, I have got, I've got a mission with Jesus to share the gospel, to take the gospel to all the people groups of the world. And you know what's amazing? Even if we can't always get it done, even if we fail, God will often bring the people of the world to us. Did you know this? Did you know that right now in our world, we're witnessing the single greatest refugee crisis in the history of our world? Millions upon millions of refugees, and 90% of them are coming out of nations where it's illegal to talk about Jesus. And they're coming into nations where there are Christian churches. And they're overwhelming those churches, and they're getting exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is literally bringing the nations to the church in his mercy. Amazing. We have a ministry that we partner with called Friends of Refugees. And they work here in Portland to help refugees resettle in our community. And I recognize the refugee situation is global and it's massive and there's all kinds of political considerations. Put all that aside for just a minute and think about this. God is drawing people who are fleeing from political persecution and many of them are coming into churches where they're learning about Christ. It's astounding. So Don Jones, you can actually, the, the, the ministry, they're here today. You can go learn about Friends of Refugees. He has all these amazing stories, but he sent me one this week that I've got to share with you to close. He describes a pastor in Lebanon, Lebanon, right on the border of Syria, millions of refugees fleeing Syria. And this pastor says, these, these refugees, they've taken over my church. It's amazing. They're just flooding into the church. So he wrote, and he said, all these refugees are coming to our church and we're overrun. We don't have enough chairs. We don't have enough coffee. We don't have enough biscuits. Don't know about that, but I get the coffee thing. Anyway, we don't have coffee, biscuits. They don't know our songs. You know, they're just in here. They're eating our biscuits. They don't know our songs. They have so many needs. Here's what he said. They're literally ruining my church. No, wait, this, is, this story ends out good. This is good. Because you know what he said next? He said, every single day when I wake up, I pray and I say, God, ruin my church again today for your glory. Ruin my church for your glory by bringing people who would never otherwise get exposed to the good news of Jesus. Can you pray for that? If you did, would you pray with joy? I would. I would. And I hope you'll join me with it this week. Psalm 47 in your hands. Pray it. Look up. Come to terms with the fact that God is king. Enjoy his victory in your life. Pray, worship, shout, sing. Acknowledge his rule. And then come under the leadership of his son, Jesus Christ.
and share the gospel on his behalf. Let's pray about that right now. Will you bow your heads? Well, Father, we want to thank you for your word. And we want to thank you for this vision. We recognize this morning, Lord God, that your son, Jesus Christ, is king. And he is seated on the throne of heaven right now in this moment. It's not a spiritual metaphor. It's not an analogy. It's an ontological truth. Jesus is seated on the throne, the risen Lord. And he reigns. And we want to submit to him today. And so I pray that in this moment, in your mercy and by the work of your spirit, that our hearts would be turned to Christ in faith. That even now we might become aware of areas where we have not surrendered to Christ. Work in us, Lord, we pray as we, as we go to the table. May we be transformed. May we be filled with joy. May we leave here with a renewed sense of our mission, we pray. To share Christ as much as we can, we ask. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.